Hello, I'm Simbos. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. So, it's all up for grabs. Or is it? This week, well, the end of last week, uh, you would have heard about our big new plan for Net Zero. It's come from the so-called Net Zero czar, Chris Skidmore. And he set out his Mission Zero statement. Now, you'll read about this on Future Net Zero and uh, Energy Lab News. And there's plenty of it. You can even find it on the government website, obviously, just to have a look. But in essence, he set out 129 recommendations. Now, where's this all come from? Well, if you look at what's been going on, the government has been dabbling with net zero czars for a while. Uh, and Andrew Griffiths was one during COP uh, last year, I say now, but the year before. And Chris Gidmore has sort of taken over since September. And what he looked at was basically uh, across the UK, so all four nations, and he asked for evidence. Now, 1,800 responses, to me, doesn't sound like a lot of responses to make a policy, but how many is important? We don't know. You couldn't spend years doing it. So I suppose what he's done is he's looked at things from business, from uh, NGOs, environmental groups, academia, and some members of the public, and he's come up with these 129 recommendations. And what he's basically saying is, this is our opportunity. Now, I agree with him that. I definitely agree with him that this is the opportunity for us to try and unlock uh, the path to, eight, uh, to net zero. And there are basically sort of eight themes he's looked at. And you can't really disagree with any of them. You know, infrastructure. Yes, we need more infrastructure. Better governments, uh, governance structures. Yes, you need better governance because if you have the wrong governance when you set out on these things, you, you won't do it. Backing business to go green. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean better practices? Does it mean being aware of carbon? Well, I'm certainly all for that. That's what we do with our Future Net Zero Carbon program. Local action. Yes, you need to engage the local population. Otherwise, it won't work. Better transparency. Well, that will get rid of greenwashing. Cleaner, cheaper, greener homes. This, for me, is the biggest one. Because unless we start to address our housing stock and our energy use... You know, a cold snap is upon us again. This has been a fairly benign winter so far, but we all know our houses are like leaky tea strainers compared to homes in Scandinavia. We are no, no point building lots and lots of clean generation if the energy just seeps out. He talks about capitalising on leadership. Well, I'm not too sure about that point, but then setting ourselves up for 2050 and beyond. Now, it all is sounds great, but the reality is this. We have got to take action. And that means government and business setting out specific plans. And this is where we need some real clear thought. So if Skidmore's plan is to be put into action, what we need is from Rishi Sunak and government and then business, a kind of very simple, here's what you do. A framework for small businesses, one for medium, one for large. One for us as householders. And of course, the way we're going to decarbonise transport. And until we have these things, plans like this sound great, but you need specifics. So that's my only concern. Tell me your views. Have a look at uh, the coverage you've given and let us know what you think. Plenty of other news uh, going on, particularly a a story I thought was very interesting uh, that I'll uh, point you to, which says that as you get more self-driving cars, which could be the answer to uh, the, the future of transport, 
could you actually have more traffic? Because think about it. If you have a mix of normal cars and self-driving cars taking people who are, say, disabled or blind or opening up driving to loads more people who currently don't drive, epileptics, for example, could actually mean more transport. That's, it's a quite an interesting one. And lots of stories going on in terms of where we are in terms of our transition for the, for the North Sea and our use of gas uh, as an interim uh, energy force. So check all that out energylivenews.com, futurenetzero.com. Now, on to the topic of this week's podcast, which is all about wind, particularly offshore wind. And it was my pleasure to speak to a really sort of a wind buff, an expert, Ian Taylor from Thistle Wind Partners, because I wanted to explore something that's been bugging me. Is offshore wind the right way for us to go? Have a listen. Ah, wind. The wind is blowing as we speak. I'm recording this because we're getting buffeted a bit. And of course, we have a lot of wind in this country. Boris Johnson, just before he left office, wanted to make the UK the Saudi Arabia of wind power. But what is the state of wind power in this country? Are we doing enough? Are we doing too much? Is it the right kind of wind? Is it the wrong kind of wind? That's the subject of the Net Hero podcast today. And I'm joined, I'm delighted to say, by Ian Taylor project director at a company called Thistle Wind Partners, who are looking to develop offshore wind capacity, uh, I think off, off the coast of Scotland. Is that right, Ian? That's right, yes. We have uh, two projects, one off the east coast of the Orkney Isles and one off the Aberdeenshire coast. Ah, lovely part of the world. I've been to Orkney. Fantastic part of the world. And a lot of wind. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, let's just talk about, before we get into kind of, you know, what you guys are doing. Um, if you went back, and I know you've been in sort of the sector for a while, you went back 25 years. What was the state of wind power in this country? Predominantly, um, it was onshore wind farm development. Um, yeah, that was really just sort of kicking off, really growing. Um, there was very little in the way of offshore wind, uh, maybe one or to demo plants, but really nothing, nothing to the scale that we're looking at right now. And it's really funny because if you look at it, it's one of the oldest forms of sort of renewable energy we, we've had, haven't we? Stick, stick a windmill up. It's been going on for thousands of years. Well, it has, yes. And, um, and I think, you know, you've seen a, an exponential sort of increase, I think, in the take up of, um, of wind in general literally, I think, in the last 10 years, mainly because I think the, you know, through economies of scale, uh, technology developments and everything else, um, certainly compared to the, to the first wind turbines that came out sort of 20, 30 years ago, you, you know, that, that has really driven the growth of, um, of, of wind farm generation um, in, uh, in the world. And I think probably more so than a lot of other places in, in, in the UK, just because we have such a vast wind energy resource, uh, both both onshore and particularly in the North Sea. When did you get involved in the wind industry, first of all, and, and what brought you to it? Well, I mean, I, I came into the wind industry in about 2003 while working for an energy utility company called uh, TXU, and we were just starting to look at um, a project in the Thames Estuary called London Array. Um, 
Oh yeah, uh, so which, I, which, which is, I was on which a is, boat actually in the summer. Went past that amazing place. Love it. Yes, <laughs> at, at the time and for a while, it was it was the largest offshore wind farm project I think in the, yeah. in, in, in the world. But yes. Yeah. So, but but what what brought you? Did you always kind of wanted to work in renewable energy? Did you think wind was the answer? Yes, I think probably from when I was a sixth former. Um, I wouldn't like to say how many years ago that was, but I remember my sixth form project was actually uh, looking at different design of blades. Uh, for wind turbines using balsa wood and a Meccano set. That was my sixth form A-level physics thesis. <laughs> my God. Yeah. Really I, think I, wind, I can't believe that. I'd never have thought people would be into that. That's amazing. Yeah, so that would have been 1983 um, sort of time frame. Oh, okay, we're roughly the same generation. I certainly wouldn't have done that project, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was it that you've always thought interesting about because this is very funny because a lot of young people you know we, we, where we are now renewable energy is big but go back to the 80s no one even thought about it did it I remember you know it was like the, the, the poster on my wall apart from Farrah Fawcett was was a, a, a Lamborghini Countach you know it was all about big power and speed we, did, we didn't think about energy and certainly I, I mean you're amazing to have thought about wind power my time, I don't think anyone thought about renewable energy. No, it, it really wasn't really discussed around the dinner table and all this sort of stuff. You know, it was uh, uh, it it was being looked at though because I do remember things like wave energy, for instance. So the salted duck technology was was being looked at back in the the, the mid eighties. So it's been around as a sort of an R and D, I almost a pipe dream for for you know 40, 40 plus years. Um, but you're right. It's 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 only been in the, in the last sort of twenty years has it really become sort of a mainstream, um, regarded as a sort of a mainstream uh, technology. Uh, that and only in the last sort of ten years has it become sort of a something which is making a real contribution to the uh, to the energy mix. So for you, when you obviously, like you said, had an interest as a teenager, what did you see in wind power you thought would be beneficial to us as a society? I just saw it as a, a a purely clean form of energy with abundance and almost limitless resource. Um, that's that's rich, really how I saw it back back then. Um, I was excited that the possibility that we could you know generate enough electricity from wind, you know, to power households, you know, around the world and you know, and the UK. So I, you know, it, it was just a, it was simply that it was a sort of an altruistic type of. Uh, desire of mine to see if we could um really you know be, i'd like to be i wanted to be involved in in that sort of energy transition amazing really good stuff i mean way ahead of your time then <laughs> well <done. laughs> uh, right let's get let's go back so we start to do wind in this country probably i, I would have said what early 90s i can remember news stories about it sort of seeing the odd wind turbine sort of maybe the late 90s um what was the kind of picture back then you you know you say you've been interested in it was it kind of like a oh this is quite nice a few hippies are doing this but you know government never really thought of it as a huge energy sector developing I don't think kind of business thought of it as as a sector it was kind of like I suppose a, a cottage industry wasn't it really maybe at the beginning but um certainly by the time you got to sort of the the very late 90s uh you know, there are a number of companies really looking, looking to develop some um, reasonably sized onshore wind farms. 
Um, and, and in fact, the government, you know, they came in pretty early with providing um, support mechanisms at the time to subsidize on, onshore wind to get it built out. Um, and um, the company I was working for, um, the energy company I was working for, certainly um, supported a number of developers through buying their offtake um, from these wind farms. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of reasonably sized projects go, you know, sort of um, being developed and being constructed back in the late 90s and the early noughties. Well, this was all offshore, was it? Or, or... No, this is all, this is only, this is really only onshore, um, yeah. onshore projects, yeah. And I was uh, developing it. I... A project yeah. in the in, in East Anglia at the time, back in the uh, the early noughties. I remember going to Holland to do a film trip when I worked for the BBC, and and seeing wind turbines for the first time, and you know on on shore, uh, and it was obviously you know you, Holland's got a lot of water, has a lot of wind as well, and they were ahead of the game. I remember, and I remember seeing it, and this was probably about two thousand, maybe maybe nineteen nine two thousand, and I was just stunned at how big they were. And I never thought something like that would happen here. What do you think has led to the boom we've seen in wind power over the last 20 years? Do you, do you think it's really because government has, has, has backed it and given uh, subsidies and opened the market up? Or do you think it's been the energy sector saying, actually, this, this is now the place we can, we can see a good return? I think, I think it was a combination of a few things. It's always this chicken and egg situation we get with um, such sort of new technologies like this. But I think it's probably fair to say that back then, the, the government um, provided the framework, um, the energy market framework, uh, and the support mechanisms to to allow um, investors to come in and um, and develop, on, you know, particularly onshore wind and and biomass and, and other projects. I think for um, you know, the, the, the technology was there. Um, it was just a case of getting the economies of scale up. Um, and that's often the case with these, um, you know, large infrastructure projects where you're look, looking to install sort of tens, sometimes hundreds of units, um, either onshore or offshore. Um, and then, you know, if you provide that framework, that then allows the R&D to come in, um, the investment to come into the supply chain. And I think, you know the two work together, and that's what's that, that's what sort of slowly started to um, develop the technology, improve the performance, and to decrease the unit costs of of um, of wind from uh, you know of wind from these projects. So I I, I think it was uh, a combination of all those things, and I think with um, you know initially on, with obviously with onshore wind, um, you know the wind turbines went from being sort of less than a megawatt to being sort of over well over three megawatts in size each one and then in offshore wind um again you know you had the mechanism you know the the support mechanism that was there um you also had the um the leasing arrangements which the crown estate uh, in england and wales and in scotland uh uh launched to uh, provide the opportunity for development companies to build out large projects i mean you know 100 megawatts is now small. Now we're talking one gigawatt plus type projects. And that also helps to bring in the economies of scale. And I think alongside all of that, and particularly more recently, has been the whole sort of energy security piece as well. You know, that's, that's, been, yeah. that's been a really important piece, I think, which has really sort of um, <laughs> further supported uh, the, the, the government's sort of support for uh, renewables, particularly wind. We're at kind of, I mean, it's really funny because... <laughs> We've probably got down on ourselves all the time. 
But there's a couple yep. of things. We, we are sort of a world leader in wind, aren't we? Particularly offshore wind. I think that's what the government stats seem to suggest. That I think, is the UK, I'm not sure if the UK is, I think it is, the global leader in offshore wind. Yeah, it is the leader. Um, I mean, the, wow, the, 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 <laughs> yes, China have installed a lot of offshore wind, um, yes. but from you know, you know, the UK has been the leader for, for, for quite some time. Initially, Denmark really kicked things off with their projects, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the, uh, the early noughties. Um, but certainly, you know, in the last five to ten years, the UK is is really accelerated its its build out program. And, and do you think uh, which that's is, because we are an island and, and we've got a lot of wind? Yes, I think it is because we've got a lot yeah. of wind. <laughs> we've got a lot of wind and we've yeah. got a lot of um, seabed, which is kind, if you like, to building yes. out offshore wind. It's, rel it's relatively shallow. The seabed, certainly in the southern North Sea, is um, it's relatively easy to install foundations for the wind turbines. You're also relatively close to um areas of of power demand you know a lot of our cities and towns are on the coast and yes. in any case they're never too far inland anyway and similarly you, you've also got you know in denmark um particularly sorry germany germany the netherlands belgium and france you know you've got a lot of conurbations right up near the coast so it all lends itself to certainly for offshore wind um, if we look at uh, where we are today i think uh obviously we've had days where nearly everything's come from wind but Roughly, I think you, you probably have the figures better than me, but I think it's about sort of 26%, sort of 30% of our, our energy is now wind, which is really incredible. A third of it is now coming yeah. from wind. Um, yep. So if we look at where we are, it's the leader of all the renewable energies, isn't it, by a long way? Yes, I probably just need to check my stats, but it's I'd say that wind on, on and offshore is the leader of all the renewable projects. Yeah, yeah, they used to be, I've got the government figures here, it is the lead, yeah. It yeah. is the lead, yeah. I mean, it used yeah. to be hydro, a lot of hydro, yeah. obviously yeah. from Scotland, but uh, yeah, wind is really uh, taken off. Yeah. yeah, and so if you look at where we are in terms of uh, the, the future, um, you know, the government has set a target, and I don't know if it's still going to continue, but it said... I think Boris said every house to be powered by offshore wind by 2030, right? Seven years away. Yeah. I mean, that's pie in the sky, isn't it? I think we are close to, to getting to that sort of target. Um, Do you really think so? I, I think I think that um, there's the, it, there's enough capacity in terms of it's being that's being developed, and there's going to yeah. be a lot of offshore wind that's going to be actually built out between now and, tw and 2030s, there's, there's, there's a lot in the pipeline. And I'm not just saying that, you know, there's a lot of sort of stuff which is just on the drawing board. There's actually stuff which is well advanced in terms of development and is even perhaps reached financial close and is about to be built out. Um, whether or not it's got, there's going to be enough there to, um, you know, um, supply energy for every household in the UK. Yeah, probably a bit of a stretch, um, but not, not too long after, I suspect. Um, yeah, you know, on, 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 on a good on a good day when the yeah. wind is blowing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's go through some of the things that wind power uh, has pros and cons. So we'll we'll do a plus and minus, right? So um, obviously that is the great thing. We got a lot of wind, but then everyone throws to me the thing which is, yeah, yeah, but what happens when the wind doesn't blow? And the second one, and we've covered stories here on Future Net Zero, when the wind blows too much. It's a really funny thing. If it's too much wind, the turbines can't turn. If it's too little wind, they don't turn. So how do you, as an engineer and an advocate of wind, 
sort of way into that where people detract say, yeah, it's great when it's running, but it's not a stable form of power. Well, there are two things I would, I'd always like to say to that is one, look, um, for every, you know, gigawatt hour, megawatt hour that's been generated, you're displacing, you know, fossil fuel, gen fossil fuel generation. So even yeah. if you're only providing so 30, 40% of the UK's energy needs from renewables, that's still a massive displacement of carbon that's not gone into the atmosphere. So no, that, and that, that, that's yeah. going to have a significant impact on helping to, you know, slow down glo you know, global warming. Um, and I suppose that... The intermittency argument, is, is, it's, it's a truth, yeah. isn't it, though? It is typical. It but, is true. Uh, but I mean, I think that... Um, yeah, we have to sort out um, the, 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 the energy storage piece. I mean, at the moment, obviously, we're, we are relying on other forms of generation to fill that gap. Um, I think there's there's a lot that's been done in, in terms of battery storage, you know, in terms of the technologies that are there. The other the other piece, which is quite interesting and exciting, obviously, is the there's the hydrogen economy, which is, um, you know, really at its very early stage yeah. right now, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think that provides effectively a means of storage. You know, yes. because you know you can you can transport the uh, the hydrogen to to wherever it's needed. So you know you're not necessarily having to run cables from far offshore offshore wind farms to a grid connection point. You can collect the hydrogen and transport it to where it's needed. All this sort of stuff. So you know I think that, but but of course you you then need the high all the hydrogen um, infrastructure to be developed. You know, and that's going to take quite some time. So yeah, it it, it is it is. It'll get there, I'm sure, yeah. um, but we still will have to rely on other forms for base low power. And I suppose the thing is, you, you know, we can criticise every industry, but, you know, as you say, if you have wind with storage and some way of electrolyzing hydrogen, it, it becomes much more, much more effective. But you need those other two industries with you, don't you? Yes, you need, you, you cannot um, turn off nuclear and uh you know gas and everything else that's not going to happen for for, for for a number of years several years you know, yes. until you've really have got a reliable storage um mechanism um through hydrogen or battery storage and what's happening uh, and, and, you know, and also i was going to also say sort of supply, supply demand management as well is another key yeah. part of that as well oh yeah, yeah absolutely efficiency is the one we never ever talk about but hey we'll, we'll do that on another podcast but <laughs> You know, when you're talking and you're 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 looking at you know the, the developments you're doing as a company and everything, yeah, you thinking about that? Are you sort of talking to battery companies? Do you have your own stuff? So what what's the state of? If I'm going to build a wind farm, right? I decide there's a nice bit of water there, right? In and I think, okay, you know, I'd like to build a wind farm there, and I think there's a town not far that could could use my energy, but I've got to think about loads of things, haven't I? And I've got to think, what what am I doing in terms of making my development future proof so are those sort of conversations going on now about kind of hydrolysis and storage and things like that absolutely they are um we are looking at obviously um a number of routes to market if you like for our power so we've got these two um, offshore wind farms we're developing um the kind of the, the the base case route to market is to export the electricity into the national grid um which um obviously then feeds the whole of the uk um but the other thing we are seriously looking at is also um exporting the ele electricity to and you know hydrogen ele electrolysis plants you know that is th that is still a, a possibility for us 
Um, it's whether or not that you know that that technology is going to be ready and commercially ready for us to be able to have a, a reliable um, route to market in, into hydrogen. So yeah. that's it's something we have to we have to think about. So it's not just our own <laughs> technology and everything else in terms of the offshore wind farm. You know, we then have to rely on the the buyer in terms of the um, the electro electrolysis plant and where that's going to be built and developed and such like. So it's you know it's all being looked at at this moment in time. But at some point in time. You know, we're going to have to make a decision as to which route to market we could choose, we're going to go for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's just go through a few things for the listener. How long does it take to build a wind farm, right? So I have no idea, right? So how long does it take? Talk me through how you build the flipping things. Because when you go and see them in the sea, you think, how, how tall are they underneath the water? You know, what, what, how'd you make it? You know, the, and then there's the arguments. We'll, we'll talk those in a second, but let's start with that first thing is how long does it take and how'd you build the things? It's a good question. I, I before I joined um, TWP uh, to lead these two projects, I was, I was working for a company called Demi Offshore, uh, which, uh, sister of which is a shareholder of, of TWP. Demi Offshore is actually a, a construction company that builds out these wind farms. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you, um, you're building in anything up to sort of if, if they're fixed bottom foundations, you're building up to anything up to sort of 60 or 70 meters of water depth. So you've got to install a suitable foundation um, into the seabed and they've got to anchor it through piles or whatever uh, onto the seabed. Um, and then you then come along with a with another vessel to install the the, the, the turbine on top of those uh, foundations. Um, you've also got to install the interray cabling, which is the cables that sort of um, connect the the wind farm wind turbines together and then ultimately connect those wind turbines into an offshore substation so there's an offshore substation that needs to be installed and then you've got the um, what we call the export cable which basically um, exports the power from the wind farm yeah um, that export cable is then installed buried generally buried um, a couple of meters under the seabed um, and then it comes out at the what we call the landfall um, uh, to a transition box and then that that is obviously then built um sorry buried as an onshore cable all the way through to the national grids uh connection point which can be you know several kilometers inland and it's the whole lot, process it's a lot of it's, construction it's, isn't it there's a it's, it's a it's a it's a lot of construction obviously you, you know our, each one of our projects will be anywhere between 60 and 80 wind turbines, very large wind turbines, up to 18 megawatts each. You know, so how many, sort of... how many years are we looking to build one? So if you said, right, I push the button tomorrow, to build those 60 you're talking about, how long will it take? Well, first of all, we've obviously got to get our planning consents and our grid connection oh. points and everything else. Well, that's got to be done, you know, so that'll be for our projects um, around about 2028 20, sort of time frame. So what's that? Five five plus years from now. Just um, for the planning process. That's the planning process and yeah, completing all completing all the engineering and everything else. Yeah. Yes. And then, you know, it, it then generally takes after financial close, you know, three years or so to to build the yeah. complete wind farm and the connection. Yeah, I mean, this is where I'm getting to because someone said to me, it's kind of a decade, but I don't know if it, it really is a decade, but it sort of seems that way. Yeah. Before you go from concept to actually generating power that we're using and that's a yeah. long time it is a long time it's a long time in planning you know so um you know that's so should that, good. Should that, if we're going to do all this do you want those processes faster i mean the government's looking at all of those things you know um 
there are possibilities to, 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 to uh, increase the speed um, maybe of the planning process, but honestly, you know, we need to do two years minimum of, of aerial bird surveys. So that's something which needs to be done yeah. anyway. Uh, you know, there is the planning, what we call the planning decision time frame, but obviously yeah. there's a lot for the, you know, the main stakeholders to consider, you know, and, and you know, to, before they make their determination. You know, maybe it is difficult yeah. to speed it up too much, I think. To be no, honest. I understand. Um, yeah. I mean, the government has a funny thing, which is it wants an ambition. You as an industry, you've got to make money and you've got to do it. Yeah. But then there's a lot of legislation. And let's be honest, a lot of concerns people have around any kind of wind or any kind of development that kind of slow the process. So, you know, it's great, our democratic process, but dare I say other parts of the world, but they don't worry that too much about that sort of stuff. They're just going to do it. So does that sort of hold us back, do you think? Or is it just a fair it, it, price it, to pay? Look, I think it might hold us back a little bit. You know, it, it is often about priorities at the end of the day. But, you know, but there are other, you know, users of the seabed and of the sea. Of you know, you have the fishing industry, yeah. nature conservation areas, you know, sea mammals, birds. You know, we, we, we need to take all of those factors into account you know uh, and and it's a, it's a, it is a balanced approach and um we, you know we've got to bring all those stakeholders along with us as well you know and we these wind farms are going to be operating for you know 30 30 plus years i was gonna um, ask how, how, how long they normally live yeah yeah, yeah they're designed they're basically they're designed for 25 years sort of but you know they'll they'll probably be in there for a little longer than that um and how so does it's, it work once you've built them? Sorry to interrupt, but just trying to again get the listener through it. Once it's built and it's running, the things that I should—I suppose—it's kind of free power. But I always wondered: do they do they do they need something to turn themselves? Do they have like electricity that goes to the, to the turbines to send the data and all that? How is that all powered? I've never quite worked that out. So obviously, it turns when the wind blows and that generates electricity. But these things must use power as well, don't they? They use a, a, a very small amount of power. Um, oh, okay. For instance, when, when you know when they're not generating, you know they they'll need, they need to be conditioned and such like. You know, you have like you say, you've got um, IT and other stuff that still that needs to be um, powered up to 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 actually monitor the the, the turbines themselves and obviously the substation. But um, it's, it's it's a pretty small amount in comparison to what you're generating. Yeah, and and in terms of the the the, the you touched on it there. People talk about, there's a couple of things, and uh, I'm, I'm sounding like a real boff in here, but I've just been reading this while we're talking, which is very interesting, <laughs> about the the issue of how you generate these things, and um, that, that there's a problem that if you build too many of them, you get something called, is it the wake effect or something like that? Which is that they're in front of each other and they sort of block the, the wind and they cast a sort of wind shadow, so you get others... So it's quite a complicated thing, isn't it, where you stick these things? Yeah, so you do get a wake effect um, if you put, say, you know, either turbines too close to each other or wind farms too close to each other. So um, you'll you'll see when you look at look at the map of wind wind farm sites uh, offshore, there's a reasonable number of kilometres, certainly um, in the sort of southwesterly, if you like, direction, sort of south southwest northeast wind direction. Um, to, to, to ensure that those wake effects are minimized or avoided. Because that, that uh, affects efficiency, doesn't it, of how much you produce? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, and, you know, within a wind um, farm itself, you know, the wind turbines are often separated by, at least today anyway, because it's a function of the, the, 
the the span of the wind turbine blades but they're they're now separated over a kilometer apart subtly wow. in the sort of the downwind direction to wow. avoid those to try to help avoid those wake effects obviously there's a lot of modeling that goes into um yeah. trying to get that optimum balance between the, the capacity and the amount of energy you want to generate from the wind farms and making sure that you've got the you know you've minimized those wake effects as well so yeah there's a lot of modeling that goes into that how do you protect the environment because that's another one that people throw against you know when you're sitting in the pub and you you, you say to someone oh, i'll do that and they go hang on what about the seabirds what about the fish what about the the cetaceans and and, and, the, and the damage to the seabed when you lump loads of concrete down and all of that how do you in the industry, you know, when you're, you're going through this process, how do you mitigate? I, 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 you can't mitigate all of it, but what do you try and do to try and make these things uh, as, as reduced as possible? Well, the first thing we do is we, you know, we do carry out a lot of surveys before um, finalising the design of the wind farm. So, you know, we, we, we look at the, you know, we do surveys in terms of the benthic, you know, the, the, the organisation, organisms, sorry, on the seabed. Um, Looking at the, um, the, the 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 aerial bird surveys, looking at their feeding patterns and their you know migration paths and, and and all that sort of stuff. Same with the sea mammals and so the sea mammals. So there's there's a lot of surveys that um, do go ahead and are completed before we build out our wind, wind farms. And yes, you can't avoid impacting the the environment. Uh, of course we do no i know <laughs> with with these large wind farms um but you you know we do we do what we can to try and mitigate that that, that impact but um at the end of the day yes we're going to be installing 50 or 60 wind turbines yeah. offshore they are a long way offshore as well uh, yeah. nowadays um we one as an example what you what you try and do is you you try and create sufficient what we call air gap between the seabed and the lowest tip point that the the blade will sweep, if you like, yeah, um, to 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 help birds actually be able to sort of maintain their their, their flight paths and feeding patterns and everything else. And so you're not sterilizing feeding areas for birds and this sort of stuff. So there are things that you you do to to try and um, mitigate some impact. It, I mean, it's so complicated. It's kind of like there's a there's a there's an engineering side to it, and then there's a whole kind of you know biodiversity animal environmental side to it as well well there is i mean then there's all sorts of things which are which are being looked at um you know uh ranging from when you're putting uh what we call scar protection to prevent the the, the sand from um being eroded by natural seawater movements around the yeah. around the bottom yeah. of the foundations you have to yeah. put scar which is basically rock placement there are alternative technologies where you can put things like fronds which do a similar thing, but they also do, do encourage marine life in, in, in the area. They're so, yeah, like, building like a little, um, like when they sh um, sink a ship and it creates a sort of coral reef, artificial reef. Yes, that, that, that's, that sort of thing. And things like your muscle beds through, you know, the cables and you can you can create muscle beds, which will also help to uh, increase biodiversity and this sort of stuff. So it's, there's, there's, there's a few things that you can do. Yeah, it's, it's quite, I mean, I have to say, you know, you, you see these things and you see them as cold bits of metal that, you know, or, or plastic, whatever they are, uh, turning around. But th there is a kind of, there's a very living element to all of this, particularly when we go, uh, I suppose, I, I, it's probably onshore as well, but much more on the offshore wind, isn't there? 
because we, we, we don't really know that much about our marine environment. We are learning a lot more <laughs> as, we, <laughs> as, we, as, we, as we develop these projects offshore. That yeah, is offshore. Right. The, the lot of data that you're collecting uh, as, as part of your development process is, 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 is incredible, honestly. So you learn, and that, and, and I hope you share as an industry that you're all, all learning from one farm to another. You know, that's right, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there is sharing of information, you know, obviously with 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 the key stakeholders, like in, for instance, up in Scotland and Marine Scotland and everything else. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of information that's being generated by by the uh, by the industry. Uh, before I go, a couple of quick things. Do you think that you know a lot of people have said this, particularly where you're based up in Scotland, and, and you look at that, the transition of the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, and there's an element of me that I actually think there's some elements of the gas industry that will survive and you know hydrogen will be part of it but let's just park that for now if that oil rig kind of industry went away we've learned a lot about the marine environment from that industry that perhaps could i don't know maybe it's already happening move into this kind of the the, the wind offshore side of things there's there already is a lot of um, knowledge transfer from the oil and gas industry to the offshore um, renewable industry you know, ranging from um, construction techniques, how, how you contract um, operations and maintenance. Um, you know, uh, so there's there's there is a lot that we're you know, and and I think one of the um, important things that um, is happening, and you know, our, our project is wanting to support as well, is that that sort of knowledge transfer. So sort of, there's a lot of skills out there from the oil and, oil and gas industry that we want to bring into the um, into the renewables industry. Uh, one other thing is obviously everyone talks about it and we, we this is our exist, existence is, you know, getting companies to cut their own carbon. We're doing ourselves. That's what we, we, we exist for. So for an organization like you and your planning, what are you doing about your own carbon, the embodied carbon in, in your uh, turbines that you build, the sort of supply chains? What, what is the industry doing in trying to cut its own carbon footprint? Yes, great. The wind turbine helps us as a as a country cut our carbon footprint by producing clean energy but they the industry itself has a carbon footprint as does every energy industry so what are you doing around your own carbon footprint well I, i'm one example is um obviously the construction vessels which are used to install these wind farms typically run on marine diesel um but now um, many of them are now being converted or actually being built as dual fuel with lng with much low, lower carbon emissions so that's that's one example that we're trying to reduce the effectively the the carbon emissions that are arising from building out these projects. And people are talking about new materials as well. And we've, we've done stories. People are talking about could you use bamboo to build these things and lots of weird stuff or kind of biodegradable plastics. I mean, I suppose this is a, a real area that your industry has got to look at. Yeah, no, it's it, it's 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 an important part of um, the you know the the technology that we are looking at um, for our projects, you know, the whole embodied carbon piece is is is, is also almost as important as the, uh, you know, of what course. you're trying to do in terms of reduce energy emissions. Sorry, yeah. um, carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah. Let's go forward before we end. All right. I like a bit of time travel in my podcast. It's now 2050. I won't give you 2030. It's 2050, right? So I'm quite an old git by now. Uh, have we got the UK running on wind power. I think what you're going to have is a is a much more interconnected um, offshore wind re renewable space. 
um, which I think is absolutely important, you know, to to enable the UK and the rest of Europe to be running predominantly on wind power. Um, what I'm saying that is you, you need something like a North Sea grid where you're basically inter interconnecting yeah. all yeah. the offshore wind farms around the whole of the North Sea and the IRSC and Baltic Sea, perhaps even more. And you've got a European interconnected grid. And I think that that is that is going to be key to make sure to making sure that we are largely, you know, um, not say, yeah, reliant on on offshore wind and renewables. I think that's that's the way it needs to go. Um, I think it's beginning to start now because obviously it's becoming difficult to in sometimes sometimes when when all the wind is blowing and you've got certain sort of energy uh, d demand supply issues to get all that power for instance into scotland all that renewable power into scotland you know yeah so if you've got that interconnection you know you can export that power elsewhere, elsewhere. yeah, yeah. And, when, and, and then when we don't have the power from you know connected wind farms in scotland we can we can bring that power in from other wind farms around around europe so that's that's where it needs to go do you feel positive about the future for your sector? Yes, because I, I do, because I think the all, all the drivers are there to, to make it happen. The technology is there, the, the, there's the, the R&D is there. I think there's a lot of political will. It's one of the few things I think where there's, everybody's pretty much joined, joined up at this stage. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, and I, and the, big, the big thing is, of course, is that the, um, the cost of energy from off offshore wind and onshore wind is one of the lowest cost of energy of all the uh, energy sources yes. out there. And, and yes. there's no there's there's no you know legacy out there in terms of you know uh, unlike nuclear, which you yeah which I course. think is the biggest one of the big benefits as well. Yeah, well, do you know what? It's been fascinating because I've I've been wanting to talk about wind for a long time, and I think you've given us a real good uh, uh, you know blow by blow, you know that. <laughs> of how it is um ian thanks so much for joining us on the uh, net hero podcast it's been a pleasure pleasure too thank you very much i really enjoyed that conversation with ian and i think you know it made me think a lot about the time scales as we said 10 years to go from an idea to having a wind farm but also think about the the way that the wind industry could trigger the decarbonization of the gas sector through hydrogen so a lot to think about there and again more than happy to hear your views Get in touch, keep subscribing and downloading the podcast. If you've got a story you think we should be listening to, then write to me, nethero at futurenetzero.com. I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.